This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Tim Challies visited 25 different countries in his memorable year, and I think he may even have eaten McDonald's in each of these countries. Is that true, Tim? I ate McDonald's in every country where there was a McDonald's. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. Well, Tim attended worship services on every continent. He searched high and low for the artifacts that would help him tell the story of 2000 years of Christian history. And he brings us along that journey in his new book, Epic, an around the world journey through Christian history published by Zondervan. I loved following along on social media as he traveled north and south, east and west. I admire Tim's zeal to introduce us to long lost heroes of the faith and even to warn us against some wrong turns in the journey. This book matches what we're doing with Gospel Bound, which is searching for firm faith in an anxious age, because Tim looks back on God's faithfulness, even as he looks forward to what God might yet do before Jesus returns. Tim writes this, If I learned anything from my journey around the world, it's the simple truth that the Lord is always at work. And indeed, he is. Tim Challies is the noted blogger of Challies.com and author of several books, including Visual Theology and The Next Story. And he joins me on Gospel Bound to share more of this remarkable journey around the world and how we might grow in faith by learning from the past. So thank you for joining me, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, such an inspiring book, and I could hardly believe it the first time you shared about how this project came about. You told me that over email, and you write about it in the introduction to Epic as well. But tell us how this project even found financing to begin with. Yeah, so I had um, just really for fun, I'd done some writing on the subject of objects before and Christian objects and sort of tracing history through it, but had never really thought that I could actually make the journey myself. And uh, one day got inspired to plot out what would a journey look like and where would I go? What would I want to see? What are some of the objects I'd want to discover along the way? So I plotted it out put it all in a document and uh, then just thought, I don't see how this thing could ever actually happen. And it just so happened right after I did all that. In fact, within a day or two, somebody got in touch with me. Uh, somebody since become quite a good friend. He got in touch and just said, Hey, I represent a group of uh, businessmen and we've been following your work and I'd like to support something you're doing. The, the question he asked was something like, is there anything you've ever wanted to do or any project you've wanted to take, to take on where money has been the object? And I told him about this project and he was happy to get me going with it. And so it just came together just like that. It was remarkable. I wish I had more friends like that, Tim. No wonder he's become quite a good friend. Now, it's just wonderful to see that kind of Christian generosity and for us to be able to all benefit from it in producing this book. Now, I think this question is one that you anticipated. It's one I think that's kind of obligatory. We're Protestants. We don't venerate relics. How does your project differ? 
Uh, well, in a Catholic setting, relics are sort of a conduit almost between yourself and the grace of God. There's something that can happen through those objects. There's grace God can give you through them. And if you go to many of the great cathedrals and European continent, for example, you'll see those relics. You'll see dead men's bones and people praying to them or through them or however they want to determine. I'm setting up these objects as simply a piece of history that's fixed that we can look at and see today and learn lessons from it. So there's no veneration of the object and even no veneration of the people beyond the object who held it or owned it or used it. We're simply simply taking these objects as a, as a sign or as a, um, as a stand-in for a person or a period of history or uh, a movement of God in time. Uh, Tim, I can't relate it all to this critique, but I feel like I, I need to offer it. Not everybody loves history or church history. Uh, speak to those folks. Why should they join you on this epic tour of the artifacts of Christian history? When you become a Christian, you don't start something, you join something that's already in progress. You join a family of believers that extends 2,000 years, really much longer than that, into history. And so, it's so important to get your bearings in the long the long line of what God has done over the course of history. Um, there's so much we can learn from the past, but really we need to orient ourselves within this stream of history. And so before we can look forward, we need to look back and just very practically, it's always amazing to me how much we can learn from the past and apply directly to today. So there's so many theological controversies that arise today. And as we go looking in history, we see, Oh, that's already happened or something very, very similar to it. We can just look at what those people determined back in the day and apply it to this. Or today, uh, we're going through a bit of uncertainty regarding um, a virus that's going around the world, a pandemic. We can look into, into Christian history, see how have Christians done with this in the past? How have Christians responded to such things in the past? And there's a lot we can learn from our brothers and sisters of long ago. Hmm. Couldn't agree more. Um, I think a lot of times people have just never been taught it in such a compelling fashion as what you do in Epic and what you do with the videos um, and what you've done with social media and things like that. So, one of the reasons why I think the, the project is so worthwhile is that it can help people to break through the idea that history is this kind of static thing that's merely about uh, long lost uh, names and dates on the page. I have not been able to travel as much as you have. I think only two of the artifacts that you've seen have I also seen, John Calvin's chair in Geneva and Billy Graham's pulpit in Wheaton, Illinois. Which historical site or artifact, Tim, is way more interesting than we might suspect? And what place is not nearly as interesting as you had hoped? <laughs> we'll do a positive what, and negative there. Sure. What is way more interesting? I think a lot of them are way more interesting. But one that jumps out to me is the Papayacta Dam in Ecuador. That, <laughs> On the one hand, you can just look at this thing and you see it's a little dam above a little or below a little lake. And uh, there's a river flowing from it, runs down to a generating station. So what? But you read the story behind that dam and how there were Christians who wanted to broadcast the gospel throughout Latin America. Um, they were using up all the power they had. They were paying too much for power, so they needed more power. So, what did they do? They bought land that had a lake on it. They dammed the lake. They built their own generator. All of this at 14,000 feet above sea level and without machinery. And they did this all for the glory of God. In fact, the dam used to have inscribed on it, 
water to the glory of God. It's an amazing story. So, okay, you just look at this thing. You happen to be going through Ecuador. For some reason, you find yourself way up this mountain. You see a dam. You think nothing of it. But you know the story behind it. And it's it's just absolutely mind-blowing. No machinery? Um, I mean, again, no machinery. No, they brought it. They brought everything over the mountains on pack mules. They had one helicopter that brought one especially heavy thing. Other than that, it was all done by hand. People drilling holes by hand, dynamiting, shoveling. It's an extraordinary feat of engineering um, just so they could broadcast the good news of the gospel. Amazing. Um, and they built this thing when there were very few radios. I mean, these people had faith to understand what God was doing and would be doing in the future. So it's, it's amazing. Um, the, the second question is what is not nearly as interesting? <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Okay. I'm going to get in trouble here from our friends across oceans. But That's the, my goal. That's my goal. Yeah, okay, good. So Australia and New Zealand are beautiful, wonderful places, but they've also been settled very, very recently. And so there's not a ton of really fascinating history there. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, I found some neat things, but you know, I went because I had to, and there's some other interesting objects I found there, but yeah, that, you know, if you want, if you want to research church history, I probably wouldn't begin in Australia, not to mention New Zealand. Oh, that's fair. And I think a lot of the United States would probably fall into that same category as well. A lot of it having been settled around that same time, especially as you head West. So it makes a lot of sense. Now I share your love for the Reformation Museum in Geneva. Highly recommended. Now, of course, we wouldn't agree with all the interpretations in that museum, but just amazing. I just remember the sheer joy of when I stumbled across it. It was just opened uh, not lo- long before I had visited next to Calvin's church. And there was also mm-hmm. that sort of surprise that came and joy that came because I just didn't even know it was there. But what other museum stands out as a must-see, if possible, for Christians? Yeah, I ran into, uh, I went into many, many museums over the course of, um, over the course of the, the year. Um, I'd want to point to the British Museum for pre-Christian history. So most of that is Old Testament history. So people think of that, but there isn't really anything or very little anyway, that's New Testament. But I think the British Library is incredible, not quite a museum. It's a, it's a collection within the British Library, but they have some amazing, amazing things there. Um, the trick is they rotate some of them. So you may go there and find Lady Jane Grey's prayer book, or you may not, but they have some incredible things. They have all the best Bibles, all the, the world changing Bibles. They've got the original score for Handel's Messiah. They've got some amazing objects there. So that's a must see. And in a city, many people get to over the course of their life as well. It's not too far off the, the beaten path. Right. Well, I had, I'm glad you brought up the dam in Ecuador, which by the way, what time frame was that? When was it completed or when, um, how long did it take? Do you remember? It was in the seventies. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I I thought it was about that time period, but you're right. Just, I mean, well before a lot of technological changes had followed through there. And um, you, you talk about, of course, you've always been dialed into technology and you, as the book progresses, talk about our phones and our apps and all these things that can do so much to spread the gospel around the world with so little effort by comparison to that dam in Ecuador. And I'm wondering, have we, have we lost anything in that transition toward sort of some of the simplicity and ease 
of being able to transmit the Christian message. Um, have, have, we, have we lost anything or is it only gain? Because I think the gain is pretty obvious. And for the record, Tim, I think you need to leave your laptop behind someday for future generations to visit. Be an artifact. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I actually thought about modern day objects. Like, could I find the original manuscript of Paul Washer's shocking youth sermon or something? But that all just seemed a little too, a little too dry to, to get too modern. Um, have we lost something? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. You think about that, Dan, when they were broadcasting the gospel, when, when that radio station, I believe it started in the thirties in Ecuador, when they started to broadcast, I think there were about five or six radios in their broadcast area that could even receive it. And when those radios were receiving information, it was basically just the Christian material. There wasn't much else being broadcast. And so maybe the big comparison is just today we're absolutely constantly flooded all the time with information. We work, we have to work hard to remove ourselves from the flow of constant media, constant information. Um, whereas in that day, I think people were eager to encounter information because they had so little of it coming their way. You can read Neil Postman as he talks about that transition in humanity, um, where we went from a dearth of information to, oh, we went from so little to so much to just be drowning in it. And so I really wonder if that's it. If today what our trouble is just cutting through the noise to try and say, this gospel message we're bringing you really is more important than anything else you're hearing. Um, it's just hard to get the message out amidst all the noise. Yeah, it's very clear that even in reading the Bible on the same device that you text emojis to your friend, where you get stock market updates, where you get sports scores or all that different thing, it can be pretty difficult. It's not totally different from radio or television in that regard, but it can be very confusing. And especially when you begin to add elements such as the worship service there um, and the distractions that can come from that as well. Um, one of the people that you really made an impression on you was Amy Carmichael in India. Uh, tell us a little bit more of why. Yeah. So I had read about Amy Carmichael a couple of times and then uh, a couple of books about her. Then Ian Murray had come out with a great uh, little biography of her. And I was really drawn to that because theologically, Ian Murray should not, by rights, be that enthusiastic about Amy Carmichael. I mean, they were very different theologically, and yet he really honored her and really came to enjoy her. And at the end of the book, he, he talks a little bit about their theological differences, some concerns he would have had. But I was really drawn to her, I think, largely through, through some of his writing. Um, but yeah, so I, I started in Ireland and spent some time touring her sites there and then went to the south of India. And... Um, yeah, it was just incredible to go to this ministry that she founded, she fundraised for, and while there to meet people who had actually met her, who had actually either known her or at least had come in as little children, and to see this ministry still carrying on as far as I could tell, still preaching the gospel, still going quite strong, still serving the people around and about. Um, it was it was powerful to see what somebody can do. They're just full out committed to the Lord, committed to honoring him in their unique callings. Um, she just stands to me as a, a special example of a woman who, who is faithful in what God had called her to. I didn't know that about Murray. And that probably is a surprise to a lot of people who know Murray's other writings. What uh, reason did he give for why she was so compelling to him? Um. I think he was just drawn again to this, the, the depth and simplicity of her faith. I'm not remembering exactly what he, uh, 
what he said to lodge her there. But I really think that was it. Just seeing this woman who did so much with seemingly so little, even as a, a, a young girl, she, she founded a church when she was in her teens or barely into her twenties, not as the pastor, but as somebody who just saw the need for a church for some people who were otherwise overlooked by society and who found the money and uh, had the building constructed and hired a pastor and all that just to serve these people. I mean, she, she was a feisty <laughs> driven person. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just had an, again, an amazing impact on the people in, uh, the air, in that area of India. I can't even imagine the kind of logistical demands of organizing a trip like this. Did you do this yourself or do you have some other help? I know you travel with Stephen McCaskill. Yeah, no, I did all the planning for it because it just takes a ton of time and a ton of planning to do it right. And uh, you got to learn how to master airlines and stuff like that to, to do these things really well. And I tell you, the Lord was so kind to us. I don't think I missed a flight or missed a connection out of, I don't know how many flights, how many miles, but I, everything went very, very smoothly. We had a couple little hiccups, um, wow. but very, very little. Wow. So speaking, let's, let's focus on the hiccups there. What is an artifact or trip you really wanted to see or to do that fell through? So the first trip to Italy was basically just a wipeout. Um, and a friend of mine who's Italian lives in Rome just kind of said, well, that's Italy for you. So what do you expect? But <laughs> went to uh, Vatican museums and the Two things there I wanted to see were both closed, went up to the Palatine Hill, and it was closed mysteriously for no reason, no reason posted, just closed. So, and that was my very first trip. So, sort of going across the world and finding everything <laughs> shut down was uh, for no reason posted, no reason whatsoever, uh, was rather discouraging. So, I had to, as I describe in the book, ended up having to go back. But um, yeah, there were other objects I wanted to find. Uh, one of the things you find is that where, um, well, where Christians are persecuted, they tend to not get rid of just the people, but their objects. So you think somebody of the impact of Hudson Taylor would be um, would have lots of objects left behind, but I couldn't find a single object related to his life. There is a great story about his tombstone, and so I, I found that and told the story of that. But um, so where there was persecution, objects disappeared, and then where enough time has passed, so you won't find much many objects related to the very early church because those things have just been lost to to time and decay yeah imagine how different that would be if not for say the muslim conquest of much of the middle east and north africa given the role of those regions in christian history imagine it yep. would look very different there uh, play travel guide a little bit here tim if christians could take just one pilgrimage not to jerusalem i think we got to say that uh, where should they go? I think the greatest concentration of Christian history is in the UK. You can go just about anywhere. You can drive any route and you'll find some of the great missionaries, some of the great preachers. There's just so much centered there. And one thing you see as, as Christian history unfolds is the center of Christianity shifts over time. So it was North Africa. It was Rome. It was Jerusalem. It was for a long time, Germany and then uh, Central Europe and then the UK. Uh, more recently, I'd say it's sort of shifted towards America. Um, but the UK is good because it's not that long ago. They take history very, very seriously during the, the time of the uh, British Empire. They were mad historians. And so they collected lots of things and filed them away in museums. Um, 
if there was one museum I wanted to see that no longer exists, there was a history, uh, there was a museum associated with the London Missionary Society where they everywhere, I mean, they sent missionaries all over the world and they collected an incredible collection of objects and had a whole museum dedicated to it. Um, but that museum has since disbanded and the objects been scattered to the winds, many of them disposed of. But I found lots of references to that museum from back in the 1800s, but it's long since gone. But that would have been an absolute joy to to browse. It's one of the first things I thought when you mentioned the UK that you would not think of that as the most vibrant place for Christianity today. But then, of course, as you point out, that's basically how it's always seemed to work. It's a migratory religion in that sense. And so, as I think about the United States or I think about North America, I imagine the same thing at certain, certain some level being true, especially as it in some ways goes back then uh, to places where it had been popular in, in Africa mm-hmm. at one point. So last question here, Tim, again, I've been talking about your book, Epic and Around the World Journey Through Christian History. I know that we're just seeing the fruit of your last couple years of labor, but I know you're already hard at work on other projects. So what's next for you? Where are you going to take us next? Sure. Yeah, the next big project I'm working on is called Working Title is Worship Around the World. And I'm doing that with my friend Tim Kazee, who would be familiar to many listeners. And the two of us are hoping to circle the world and see how Christians worship in different parts of the world. So we're looking specifically for churches that are theologically sound, but also um, culturally distinct and that they're they're worshiping in ways that are suitable for their style or for their culture. So what we wouldn't necessarily want to do is go far across the world and then worship at an English speaking church full of expats. We'd rather go where they've really Chris Tomlin singing Chris Tomlin. Right. Exactly. Exactly. With guitar, all that. Like we'd like to go where the gospel has taken deep root and they've developed liturgies. They've developed ways of worshiping. They've developed their own music. They perhaps sing in a musical style that's relevant there and um, then share that. So the big picture is I'd like people to imagine what God is doing every single Sunday. The sun rises over the South Pacific and Christians rise, they get out of bed and they worship in ways that are distinct to Fiji, to Tonga. And then the sun breaks over Australian and the Aussies worship and then China and the Chinese people worship as Chinese people, and just get this picture of what God is doing every Lord's Day. I think it should be a really uh, great experience and hopefully a real blessing for God's people. I'll be there to watch on social media and to look forward to the book and the video as they come out there. I guess the real question, Tim, is that uh, does Tim Kizzee, does he share your love of McDonald's? I don't think he does. He has a love for good coffee. I have a love for bad coffee. So we are (laughs) anticipating some struggles there. We'll do our best. (laughs) The Lord shall see you through. Um, My guest on Gospel Bound has been Tim Challies, author of Epic, an around-the-world journey through Christian history. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.